Good morning. Well, first thing I want to do is apologize for going so long last week. Um, I, I really am aware that when I go over, it, uh, it creates a lot of frustration for the people, especially the people who take care of our little ones in the back. Um, and it, it creates an inherent distraction from the message itself after a certain point. So uh, John Hodges has rigged a taser to this side of the podium. <laughs> And uh, he has a remote control, and at 12.15, if I'm still talking, he's going to hit the button. Uh, Before I get to the focus of today's study, I want to begin by clarifying something from last week. Uh, I said last week that I'm not so sure that we who are God's children by faith in Jesus Christ would do any better than Israel if he put us through the same wilderness experience that he imposed upon them. I want to be clear that I'm not saying in any way that obedience to God is optional because we're not capable. Our imperfect compliance with God's standard of righteousness every day of our lives, as believer, even as believers, does not in any way nullify God's requirement of holiness. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus concluded his declaration about the kind of righteousness that passes muster with God by saying, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the exact same standard that God gave to Israel in Leviticus 19.2 when he said, be ye holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But my point in talking about the fact that we would probably not do so much better than Israel is simply that while we who are in Christ have been made holy, spotless, and blameless in God's sight when it comes to our position in His eyes, God is still at work to perfect that holiness in us in practice, right? That's the difference between justification and sanctification. That work will be completed when glorification occurs. Positionally, the miraculous heart transplant by which God takes our hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh and writes His law upon our hearts is a work that, by His declaration, is already accomplished. We are new creatures. But at the same time, in practice, God is still perfecting that work of transformation. And until we stand before Him glorified, freed not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but also from the presence of sin, we will continue to fall short of the requirement of His holy character in our behavior. God does bless us as we manifest Christ. And he does chastise and discipline us to correct that which is lacking of Christ's character in us. But both the reward for godliness and the discipline without which we will never manifest an ounce of godliness this side of heaven, both proceed from grace, never merit. That was what I was trying to get at. That understanding of the reality of of godliness 
and how we get it keeps us where we must be, grateful, utterly dependent, and unwaveringly Christ-focused, never self-focused. Are you with me? Any other approach to life and godliness violates the very humility that God says in Deuteronomy 8, He is at work to impart to His people. And in many other passages. God's work to impart that humility is what this passage is about. And it is the first step toward genuine godliness. If we think we bring something to the table when it comes to our standing before God or our performance by the hand of God, then our focus is in the wrong place. All right, let's press on. Last week we saw that according to Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3, God's purpose in humbling Israel for 40 years in the wilderness was twofold. Uh, uh, Two humblings, if you will. First, he said he humbled them to test them, to know what was in their hearts, whether they would keep his commandments or not. And secondly, he let them be hungry and fed them manna in the wilderness in order that they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by all that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Last week we focused on kind of developing the context and on that first point, God's test, that Israel failed. This week we're going to focus on the second of those two humblings. I want to first kind of summarize uh, where, where I'm going, and then we'll, we'll go there. First is what we've just said. The focus is on God's second purpose in humbling Israel to show them that they do not live by bread alone, but by all that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Second, we're going to find that that, that idea, all that proceeds from the mouth of, of God, focuses on the word of God. It includes a lot of stuff, but it focuses in this passage on the Word of God. And so we're going to look at what happens when God speaks. What does His Word do? Then we're going to look at what Jesus Christ said about the Word of God and the bread of life. And we're going to find that He he adds an amazing dimension to everything that was presented in the Old Testament, one that we must understand We're going to look at the metaphor of food in the Bible, the picture that's inherent in what the Bible says about food. And we're going to try to make sure that we are partaking of the substance and not of the symbol. And lastly, we're going to talk about the discipline of feeding on God's Word. What do you do when you're tired of real food? All right. Deuteronomy 8.3. It's the passage we've already looked at several times. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by all that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now that word in Hebrew, all, in the Hebrew it doesn't say every word. It says all. Uh, and so it's kinda, it looks kind of general at first. So what is it that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord according to Scripture? Well, a lot. <laughs> first, the Word of God, there are two fundamental things. The Word of God and the breath of God that proceed from God's mouth. But what do those things do? Well, first I want to say the overwhelming majority of passages that mention the mouth of the Lord and what comes from His mouth talk about the Word. A few of them talk about His breath. And so our focus is going to be on the Word. But both His Word and His breath create 
They impart life. They impart blessing and judgment. And interestingly, in 2 Timothy 3, there's a very strong connection between the breath and the word. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God, theonoustos. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And it's on that basis then that in the next chapter, Paul says, preach the word. Don't preach something else. Because the word is that which is profitable. The word is that which is breathed out by God. So the the breath and the word are very, very uh, connected in Scripture. Now what happens when God's word goes forth? Well, first, to start at the beginning, creation. In Genesis chapter 1 and a whole bunch of verses... We see a pattern. God said, let there be something. And there was. It was so. He merely spoke, and the heavens were made, and the earth and everything on it, and all the life that populates the earth, and and mankind, merely by the word of God spoken. Psalm 33.6 is another interesting verse that ties the, the idea of, of the word and the breath of God. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And that's what's called parallelism. You see it thousands of times in the Psalms. A statement is made, and then that same statement is reworded to amplify the idea. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The word and the breath are used almost synonymously here, both with the result of creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that not only does God create by his word, he sustains by his word, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, also by whom all things were created. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things, how? By the word of His power. His word holds everything together. These are not minor ideas, are they? Genesis chapter 3, Okay, we saw God create in Genesis 1 by speaking, and then came the fall, and then we see God judging by his word. There are three specific judgments that occur in Genesis 3 after the fall of Adam and Eve. The first is the judgment against the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, here's what's going to happen with you. And then to the woman, he said. And then to Adam, he said. And when he said those things, they became absolutely inviolable. That which God declares happens. So he judges and he curses with his word. Revelation 19, okay, we were at the beginning of his revelation. Now we're at the end. Revelation 19, at the end of the ages, when Jesus returns to judge all the nations that come up against him at, 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 in Jerusalem, it says he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And we see the armies come up against him and then from his mouth a sharp sword comes forth so that with it he may smite the nations. 
You see that image of the sword coming from the mouth of Christ in a few different passages, and it's always a reference to his word. Jesus speaks, and entire nations of armies are decimated. This is a very, very powerful idea, the word of God. His word restores and blesses. In Isaiah 58, speaking of the blessing Israel would enjoy if they truly honored his Sabbath and if they understood the principle of fasting, of setting aside their own desires in favor of of that which concerns God. He said, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you right on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And by the way, these are just a very small, this is a small sampling of instances of this kind of thing. Speaking of the coming of Messiah's kingdom and the restoration of Israel to, to Zion, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, God says that war is going to cease. And he says that he's going to provide perfectly. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. (laughs) What happens when God's word goes forth? Everything that matters. Creation, provision, judgment, correction, restoration, blessing. There is uh, nothing in the course of our lives or in the course of all that happens in creation that happens apart from the Word of God. Painful things and pleasant things, judgment and restoration, all proceed from the mouth of the Lord. God's miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness was not merely to show Israel that God could provide for their daily physical needs. It was a picture of the power of God's word to provide all that Israel needs. And by the way, that includes God's judgment for those who are his people. There's a destructive judgment and there's a corrective judgment. Now, I want to look at what Jesus had to say about the connection between the word of God and the bread of life, the two elements in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And specifically, what he had to say about that verse, Deuteronomy 8.3, because he cited that verse. In fact, he cited that verse in the very first event that followed his baptism. That event was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we find the record of that event. And by the way, look at the wording in black up there that's bolded because I'm going to talk about that in a second. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, and then he quoted Deuteronomy 8. He said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and he refines the idea, all that proceeds from the mouth of God, he zeroes in and he says, every word 
every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it's actually singular. I mean, it's each word. Now, before I go further, I want to point out in the bolded print that there's a thematic connection between the language in this passage in Matthew 4 and the language back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, it says, God led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Here in Matthew 4, 1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. You have the leading, you have the wilderness, and you have 40. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says that God let Israel be hungry and fed them with manna which they did not know. Matthew 4, 2 says that after Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Now that kind of thematic repetition is very Hebrew. And it's very important in Scripture. It's supposed to get our attention. It's God's way of saying, you've seen this before, now you're seeing it again. Connect the dots, as Bob would say. (laughs) Jesus was the perfect example of the very kind of godly humility at which Israel had failed so miserably. The godly humility that, that God was and is at work to teach his covenant people. Jesus resisted successfully, flawlessly, the same kinds of temptations to which Israel fell. And by the way, if you look at the three temptations of Satan and you go back and look at, at, at Israel's failures in the wilderness, you're going to see some, some very important connections. I'm not going to take the time to do that right now because Matthew 4 is not our key passage, but I challenge you to look at that. Jesus did what Israel did not do. He is the perfect law keeper. Indeed, he is the only law keeper. And it is only in him that we stand righteous before God, and it is only in him that we have the law of God written upon our hearts. Here in Matthew 4, Jesus quotes from the Greek version of, of the Old Testament, and again, he says, he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by each word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's an important idea. God imparts life to us as his people through his word. Not in some mystical, incomprehensible way, but through the very words that God speaks. Propositional revelation. God uses these words to impart life. Now, Satan appealed to Jesus to feed himself. You're the son of God. Why should you be going hungry? Here's some rocks. Make some bread. But Jesus, in his perfect, sinless humanity, knew with crystal clarity that which you and I struggle to lay hold of. That the life and sustenance that truly matters is spiritual, not physical, and that life comes to us through every word that God has spoken. God's revelation of himself through his word imparts life and sustenance to us because he is our life. He is our life. It is in knowing him that we know life. And the way we come to know him is through 
that which he has revealed of himself through his word. I challenge you to find another way to know him. You won't. John, in John chapter 1, Jesus declares himself to be the perfect word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing that exists came into being. John 1.14 then says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the perfect expression, the perfect revelation of God. He said, You want to see the Father? Look at me. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus said he is the perfect word. He also said that he is the true bread and the true life. John chapter 6 is just a passage that blows me away every time I look at it. And it's so full of Old Testament ideas. In John chapter 6, verses 48 to 52, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, speaking of himself, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. In John 14, verse 6, of course, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. (laughs) There is no other. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 2 through 4, Paul said, Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, you want to know where your life is? Your life is Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We've got to stop looking for that glory, for that beauty, for that majesty, for that life in any other place because it doesn't exist. And we cannot miss the connection here between Jesus Christ as the source of true life himself and his word as the conduit by which he imparts that life to us. His word gives us life precisely because it reveals him to us. And he is, he is our life. You got that? I mean, it's, it may seem elementary, but... If you want to know God, you've got to know His Word. And that provides a great transition to the next point I want us to consider, and that's the, the metaphor of food in the Bible. Are we confusing the picture with the reality? 
I believe that we actually have the metaphor backward a lot of the time. We think that God's word is food to us in some metaphorical sense. The physical earthly food that we have on our plate in front of us at at our dining table, we take that to be what keeps us alive. And God's word is then a picture of of that substance. And Jesus says, no, you got it backward. The metaphor works the other way. Food is a tangible picture, a metaphor, of, of a far more real sustenance that comes to us only from God. That provision, that sustenance is the reality of which true life consists. Jesus made this point very forcefully. In John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, the people gathered again in Jesus' presence, and they were ready for some more food. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, the miraculous signs that prove that I'm Messiah, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. Jesus is saying to this crowd, if I don't feed you again, I'll probably never see you again. And that tells me you've got this completely wrong. You're after the wrong food. Do not work for the food that perishes. My dear brother Brad Burton has a very effective illustration of our foolish tendency to substitute earthly pictures or reminders of God's amazing realities for the realities themselves. Here's a woman whose husband is sent off to Iraq on a tour of duty with the army. She has a framed photo of her handsome husband in uniform that's very dear to her. And the whole time her husband is overseas, she obsesses over that photo. She keeps that photo every place she goes. When she goes from room to room in the house, she picks it up and takes it and puts it on a counter in the room she's in so she can always see it. If she goes someplace out of the house, she sticks it in her purse and has it with her. Her friends see how she handles that picture and they say, man, you must really love your husband. Well, after two years, the tour of duty is over and her husband, he makes it it through, he comes home. He shows up at, at their doorstep and she greets him in tears and gives him a long embrace and then she turns her affection and attention back to the picture. She continues to do everything just as she had done when he was gone, focusing her attention on the picture, but paying little attention to her actual husband. She clings to a symbol, to the reminder of her husband, even though her husband is standing right in front of her. Now, if you think it would be ridiculous for a loving wife to do such a thing, you're on the right track. But beloved, the way many in the body of Christ 
And no doubt some in this room this morning spend their lives as every bit as foolish as what the woman in that story was doing. Only it's foolish on a much grander scale in a far more important and pervasive way because it is a foolishness that robs you of real life. When it comes to matters as critical as what life is and how it can be nurtured and sustained, we must not confuse the symbol with the reality. Another dear brother, Nathan Funk, said, Spiritual reality and physical reality have many similarities because the physical is a symbol of the spiritual. Both are real, but I love this. He said the spiritual is the one that is primarily and essentially real. When we suffer lack spiritually, the tendency of our fallen nature is to try to meet that lack on our own through the physical counterpart to the spiritual reality. So rather than seek after God, we substitute the symbol for the substance. I couldn't possibly said that better. Beloved, we need to get this right. Where is the focus of your affections? Is it the provision and security and control that you can see and handle and taste? Things that can never be the source of real life and real blessing. Or is it the person in whom your life is hidden? In John chapter 6, again, we saw this before, but 48 through 52, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. When the Jews challenged him for what he said, Jesus made his words even more forceful. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. You may think you're alive, you're not. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. You know what? That freaked the Jewish leaders out beyond belief. They had been told all their lives, you can't, you can't drink the blood of a sacrificial animal. But there is, there is a blood that is so pure and so holy and so full of life that everything it touches is given life. A blood that does not make unclean, but that takes that which is as crimson as scarlet and turns it white as snow. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, the Lord said. Well, when Jesus saw that even his disciples struggled with that idea, uh, he said to them in verse 63 of John 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now look at that. Look at the underlined part. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus says he's the bread. He says he's the life. And then he says the words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. Because that's how the life is imparted, through the word. Again, the disciples, uh, 
many of those who were following Jesus withdrew, but the 12 were still hanging with him. And Jesus said, therefore, to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter spoke up and he said, Lord, I love this, to whom shall we go? (laughs) You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you were the Holy One of God. How did they come to that knowledge? By the words of Jesus Christ. And yes, by beholding his works. But even in beholding his works, what they saw was the corroboration, the proof of that which had been told through the prophets in many portions in many ways for many generations. The word of God was borne out by Jesus Christ. And so they believed. And they knew that in him was the life and they had no other place to go. So they stayed. We have to get that. We have to understand where true life comes from. All right. How do we partake of true food and true life? The problem with spiritual realities is that you can't partake of them the same way we're used to partaking of things, by grabbing them with our hands and shoving them into our mouth. How do we come to know in our hearts the person of Jesus Christ? through the words by which he has revealed himself to us. John 6, 63, we already saw two of these verses. Jesus said, As the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. John 6, 68, Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's the word concerning Christ. How much of the Bible is the word concerning Christ? Every word of it, all of it, is about Jesus Christ. All of it points to Christ. How do you move the eyes of your heart away from pictures, shadows, imitations of real life to the substance of real life? The one and only way that you can partake of the life that God has given to you in Jesus Christ is to feed on his word, the word of life. So what's stopping us? (laughs) What's keeping us from regularly feeding on God's Word just as eagerly as we seek out our next meal, especially when we're hungry? Is it because God's Word is too boring? Is it because you don't feel like you really get anything out of it when you read it? It's just mysterious. It's hard to understand. Let me ask you a couple of questions. First, what do you do when you're bored with food? Do you uh, quit eating? You ever had food that wasn't very exciting? I have. Uh, No. Let me... Let me, let me clarify. I can see where this is going. I, I, let, me, let me clarify. The image I had is not anything that my wife has set before me. The image I had in my mind was the mystery meet at the dining hall at Texas A&M. That's what I had in my mind. <laughs> Joe would say that the food's really good at OU, right? 
All right. Do you ever say, I don't care about food anymore, I can do just fine without it? I've already eaten every kind of food I care to eat. I know what they all taste like. It's boring to eat something I've already eaten, so I'm just going to quit eating. We all know where that would lead, right? As soon as you decide never to eat again, you start dying. And unless you change your mind about not eating again, you finish dying. Sane people wouldn't do such a thing, would they? But where the Word of God is concerned, isn't that what we often do? When we refuse to feed on God's Word regularly, we move toward death. If you ever stop feeding on God's Word altogether, you, you die spiritually. Now, I'm not saying that you lose your salvation. If you're God's child... He will never allow you to lose the eternal life that he has given to you. But the more you turn aside from feeding on his word, the more spiritually malnourished you become. And your experience of the life that he has given to you, that experience goes away. And what you experience instead is death. Let me ask a second question. Can you eat and not be nourished? Well, not if you're eating the food that's real. If the food available to you uh, doesn't seem like it's going to feed you because you just don't get it, you know, or let's say you got a plate of food in front of you and you eat it and and you're just convinced there's nothing in here that's worth eating. Well, if there is something in it that's worth eating, then your perception of it doesn't affect how how, how nourished you are, right? Your perception doesn't determine determine the impact of the food on you, right? The Israelites of Moses' day knew all about boring food and what they considered questionable food. For 40 years, they ate manna. They had manna wafers, manna cakes, manna pudding, the occasional manna on mutton sandwich. (laughs) And in every case, all they had to drink was water from rocks. High mineral content. In Numbers 11, they lamented so greatly about their boredom with manna that God gave them a little interlude. He rained quail on their heads until they were so sick of it that they were gagging. But what sustained their physical lives for 40 years in the desert wilderness was manna that he provided on the face of the ground every morning for six days every week with a double portion to cover the seventh, the Sabbath. And guys, I strongly suspect that the vitamin, mineral, and protein content of that manna would put to shame any food that mankind has ever consumed since. However boring it was to the Israelites, however questionable they thought it was as a source of nutrition, it nourished them and it sustained their lives, not just marginally, but fully met their need for nutrition according to the design of God. And as we saw last week during that same 40 years in the wilderness... God brought forth water from solid rock everywhere they went. Not a little bit of water, but according to Psalm 78, verses 15 and 16, water in torrents like flowing rivers, water like the oceans. They had more water than they could could drink. They probably got to take showers in the wilderness. But those miraculous provisions directly from the hand of God 
They weren't the reality of life. They were just pictures intended by God to show Israel something, to humble them, to show them their utter dependence upon Him alone for life and for everything. Ultimately, to show them that true life does not consist of food, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Isaiah 55:11. Guys, especially young people, I want you to pay attention here. This is what God says about his word. My word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty without accomplishing my desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That goes to that issue of will the food nourish you? The answer is yes, it will. Whether you know it or not, whether you think it will or not, God's word will have its way with you if you partake of it. I hope you're with me on that. I hope you're with God on that because he's very emphatic. (laughs) By the way, just before this in Isaiah 55 is where God says, my ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high, so are my ways different than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's why we need his word. That's why we're utterly dependent on his efficacious word, his word that does in us what he determines it to do. Always. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God lays us bare before God. It pierces our hearts. My friends, God never says that about any Christian book or about any man's sermon. He says that only about that which he has revealed to us in his word. It's living, it's active, it lays us bare before God, and it changes our hearts, it transforms us, it gives us life. It is the provision, it is the sustenance, it is the life that we must seek because there is no other. Everything else is a picture. Do you want to spend your life like that lady walking around with a picture and ignoring the reality? I don't think you do. Do you want real life? Do you want joy instead of depression? Do you want the peace that surpasses all comprehension instead of days and nights filled with anxiety? When I was the same age as some of the young people in the nosebleed section up there, I was on tranquilizers to get through every day. And that didn't solve my problem, it just masked it. I was covered with acne, I was lonely, I was scrawny, I was scared to death of all manner of things. I was depressed and, and more than once ready to throw in the towel. Many mornings, even to my own surprise, I would wake up and I would must manage to muster up 101 degrees of fever when there was nothing physically wrong with me. And I would throw up so violently that I would, it, it left my mother completely stymied, my mother who loved me fiercely. She didn't know what to do. So she took me to the doctor and he put me on Stelazine. It's a high-powered tranquilizer. I was on it for quite a while. 
It dulled the symptoms for a little while, but it didn't fix anything at all. I became sullen. I started associating with friends who proved the biblical dictum that bad company corrupts good morals. And I generally stopped caring about much of anything. And you know what freed me from that miserable existence? personal knowledge of God and His incomparable love for me that came from devouring His Word. The Word of God became my one legitimate obsession. And in less than one year, I, became no, I, I went from being known as a smart but very unhappy kid to being known as a Jesus freak. And I wore that like a badge of honor. I had a bracelet on my hand that said, Jesus freak. By the way, for those who don't know what that term means, it means Jesus fanatic. And that's the one obsession that's okay with God. One of my favorite teachers in my senior year told me that I was too smart to get tied up in all that religion stuff. I told her that trusting Jesus as my Savior and following Him was the most reasonable thing I'd ever done in my life. At the end of my senior year, the faculty asked me to deliver the closing prayer at my graduation. I'd been talking to just about everybody that breathed about the gospel. A Jewish kid from my graduating class fussed to the school administration because I closed that prayer at the graduation in the name of my Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two years later, I saw that same kid at a Campus Crusade for Christ convention in Colorado. God had transformed his heart, too. I've been, stu- I've been studying His Word ever since. Have there been dry periods? Yeah, you bet. But He's always drawn me back. Where else can I go? Only He has the words of life. I share those personal things with you not to turn anyone's attention to me but in the hope that it will help turn the eyes of our hearts, especially those of the young guys and girls who I pray with all my heart will be the next generation of servant leaders in this body to the word of life. Job said in Job 23.12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's what he calls us to do. Do you want real life? Then here's what you must do. You must feed daily on God's Word. And when you stray from it, come back to it as a starving man seeks out his necessary food. The Word of God will never, never disappoint. Loving Father, burn this into our hearts. It's so easy, Lord, to get uh, sidetracked and distracted by, by imitations of life. So easy. And yet, Lord, you've set before us real life. And you've given it to us freely. Not just freely, but you've given it to us abundantly 
for those of us who have simply believed in your Son as our life, our Savior, our Redeemer. Burn it into our hearts, Father, that day, every day and every moment of our life, He is the only life that, that exists. Cause us to seek Him out with all our hearts as a deer pants for the waters. Cause us to seek Him out, Father, by consuming, devouring, saturating ourselves with the Word that you have given to us to make yourself known. Because it is in knowing you, Father, that we have life indeed. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. And for his sake.